Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, whether it's snowing out there on April 3rd or it's warm and sunny. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change your word. It doesn't change what you've done for us. It doesn't change why you put us here. It doesn't change what you desire and want to do in our lives. And we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, we pray today for the word that you want to speak to us today. Father, I trust you that you will draw out of my heart that which you want to share, that the words will come only as you want them. Lord, that I speak only the oracles of God, your heart, your words, your ideas. And we pray that the Spirit of God will take them and deposit them in our lives and our hearts that we may be changed when we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a wonderful message prepared for you which we'll probably hear next week because I really felt impressed during praise and worship to change the message. So they're going to put, try to get the, the verses because they don't know exactly what the verses are. I'm not sure I know either. But I'm standing there this morning during praise and worship and I'm looking at the communion elements over there and I really felt a scripture come to me. So if you'd open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Because it's so easy and sometimes I think we do here we do this as just sort of a ceremony that we tack on at the end of a service. And, um, and we can't do that. Uh, and you'll see why in a few minutes. Several years ago, um, I decided to... We normally share the Lord's table every month. Um, and several years ago, I decided to suspend that because we were doing... I felt we were doing it more as a matter of habit than we were doing it knowing what we're doing and why we're doing it and doing it purposefully and reverently. And then I read this scripture we're going to read right now, which kind of in, in, it drives home what the reason is. And I think that, that you know, some of, us have come, some of you have come out of churches where this was a religious r- ritual that you went through without really understanding why you did it. Uh, and in fact, many of you were not allowed to participate in all of it, only able to share the, 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 the bread or the, what I guess they call the host. Uh, I was raised in a little different tradition, but it was still a matter of a religious ceremony. Nobody ever taught what it meant. I got into Bible school and began to read my Bible and open up my eyes to understand what it meant. But then we, you know, in many of those churches, they did it as a ritual on a specific day. In some cases, they did it every time they came together. And there's nothing wrong with that because the Bible doesn't tell us how often to do it. But then I think some of us, some of the churches, many churches, especially independent churches, kind of went to the other extreme. It's just that because it doesn't tell us when we have to do it, and we're not under some law, we're just going to kind of do it when we feel like doing it, without understanding what it is significant of. So we're going to look at some scriptures this morning about the Lord's table, and just trust the Holy Spirit to share with us this morning what He wants to know about what we are going to do together. We're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, when Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's correcting things that they were doing wrong. He's correcting. This is a church that was full of factions that had people that were, they were fighting over who they were a follower of. And some were following the Apostle Paul. Some were following Apollos, who was a very great, uh, powerful, anointed teacher. Others were following other men. And, you know, and they were, the church was divided into factions and, and when they would come together, understand, they didn't just come together in those early days on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. They came together almost daily, and, and they would come and they would share things together. Now, this is a church that's, that's you know area of Greece, so these are pagans that have gotten saved. These are not Jewish believers that have been converted into Christians. These are pagans that come out of all kinds of, di- uh, of worship. Uh, I think in this city they had the, the, the temple of Diana and they would worship her and they would sacrifice animals in the altar and they would worship and some of them practices was to drink the blood. So they're coming from pagan practices where they would eat animals, sacrifice to idols, they would drink the blood which, of course, the Bible says we can't do, and, 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 and all kinds of things like that. And so it's understandable that they didn't understand all this, so Paul is bringing correction to them. But out of his correcting them, we can learn some things. And we're going to see why this is so important. So we're going to read right down through here because Paul is giving them instructions. Now, in giving these instructions, I don't praise you. Since you come together in, in church, not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, of course, in our churches today, we would never have divisions. 
There's another term for it. They're called cliques. We have our own favorite people we like to associate with and sit with and visit with when we come to church. And I, I love my brothers and sisters on the other side. I'm just not going to go talk with them particularly. And we form our own little cliques. Those are called divisions. And those are ungodly. And they have consequences to them, which we're going to see. Verse 19, There must also be factions among you, for those who, who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And that struck me this morning, because although we may be not coming together quite the way they did, the real question is, we're going to celebrate what we call communion together. But the Bible calls it the Lord's table. And so the question is, as we come to this, are we truly recognizing that this is the Lord's table? This is something He instituted for us to do and that it has meaning that He intends to communicate. It has, it's intended to be meaningful to us when we do this. And so what Paul is telling them here is, you go through the ritual but you don't recognize what it really signifies. By the way, there are not many ordinances like this that Christ told us to do. One was baptism, the other is the Lord's table. That's it. Everything else, man's kind of added. But those are the two that the Lord has said, this is what I'm telling you, I'm commanding you to do. He doesn't say when, he doesn't say how often, but we're all to be baptized in water, and we're all to celebrate the Lord's table, and what we're going to see is whenever we do it, we're to have the right attitude. We're to have the right attitude. Okay. Verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and the other, look at this, in church, drunk. So what's happening is they're coming together, and they're like having a great potluck dinner. And, you know, if, if you want a good turnout for a church activity, make it a potluck dinner. Because if Christians are going to eat, they'll come out. If we're going to get taught, well, maybe not. But if we're going to eat, and that's true of pastors too. The best way to get pastors together is to feed them. That's because we're just cheap like everybody else. So that's what they were doing. They were coming together and they were bringing their own food. But what's happening is this clique was sitting over there and they were sharing their, you know, their beans and rice and chicken. And this group was over here sharing their, you know, New England boiled dinner. And this group over here was sharing their, you know, whatever their, whatever their, whatever their food was that they liked, they were sharing it with each other. It's interesting times to go to the church picnic and see how the church congregates together around their taste in food, which tends to come from their their ethnic and national background. And there's nothing wrong. We love the tremendous diversity we have here. But we ought to celebrate the diversity, not use it as a basis for division. And so that's what was happening here. And they were seeing it as just a place to come and eat. They were eating in church, and some of them were getting drunk in church. Imagine that. And not on the, spirit, not on the right spirit. Verse 22, this is where he begins to give some instruction about this. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, this is not like, the purpose of this is not to fill your tummy and make you feel nice and full inside. It's not to satisfy the desires of your body. It, this has a different purpose. That's, that you do at home when you have your normal meals. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? He's talking about how we see each other. We're going to see down the line, he talks about rightly discerning the body of Christ. And he has several meanings to that, I believe. One is, the, is, the, is what the bread represents, which is his body. But the other is we're the body of Christ. And we're going to see there's consequences to not rightly discerning and honoring the body of Christ. The purpose of this meal, one of the purposes of this meal, is to celebrate the union that we have together with him and with each other. And it's easier to celebrate the union we have with Him, but Jesus says, the measure of the relationship you have with me is the way you live with each other. So if we come to church and there's strife, there's, there's divisions, there's cliques among us, and we sing and say, go great is our God, sing with me how great is our God. Oh, we just love you, Lord. 
that's not how, he doesn't see and hear what we're singing to him unless it's reflected in how we love each other. And the measure of our love for each other isn't how well we love people that are like us and that like us and we like them. The measure for our love for each other and for Christ is how we love people that don't love us or that are not like us. That are either of a different color, a different age, a different interest, a different nationality. And again, it's, I have the privilege every Sunday to stand up and see the incredible diversity that God has brought together here. Not just diversity of nationality, but ages. We have a tremendous spectrum, span of ages. Even from someone that just turned 90, all the way down to young people that are coming into the church, young families coming into the church. And one of the things that thrills me is we're getting more and more young families coming here. That's the future of the church and the next generation. That's exciting. But it's not enough that we come together and worship together. Do we really relate together and connect together? And I mentioned this Wednesday night, one of the evidences of how well we're doing, and I'm not looking, I'll look this way right now. One of the evidences of how well we're doing is how many blue chairs there are between us. Okay. And, and I'm, I like it too. I like my chair, my wife, and then another chair and another chair, and then I'm comfortable because in New England, and really in America, we like our space, our elbow room. You go into other nationalities and they pack together. Somehow they have a sense they need each other more. There's more of an awareness of how much we need each other. And I believe we're going to come to a time when we realize how much we need each other. Amen? All right. So Paul's addressing not just the, 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 the ceremony they're about to go through, but the significance of it is. Because the purpose of this meal is to celebrate a covenant. But it's not just a covenant we have with God, it's a covenant that we have with each other also. And they were not living it out. So let's go finish in verse 22. He says, What do we have not houses to eat and drink in? Or do you spot, despise the church of God and shame those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So he's telling them, what I'm about to tell you, I got directly from Jesus. Now we're going to look in a few minutes, we're going to go back to the upper room. We're going to go back to Jesus giving this instructions to his disciples. And Paul wasn't there. Paul wasn't saved at that time. Paul was still a Pharisee and he was out in just a few years. He was out trying to destroy the church. But then on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to him and he's converted on that role because he sees who Christ really is. And then by Paul's own testimony, he spends about three years out in the Arabian desert and Jesus appears to him, we don't know how many times, and Jesus gives to him personally the doctrine of righteousness, which is the heart of Paul's writings for two-thirds of the New Testament. So at that point... Jesus must have given to him exactly these instructions. So my point is, when he says, I deliver to you that which I got from the Lord, he got it face to face from the Lord. He ha- Let's put this way. He has it on good authority. Okay? The best. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, which kind of implies he's already told them this. And he's reminding them of something he's already taught them. And sometimes we need to be reminded of things we've known because we leak we forget. We get distracted. That, and this is what it is. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there's a large group of Christians that believe what Jesus is saying there is this literally turns into his body. So that when we eat that bread, we are literally eating his body. But that's not what he's really saying there. He's saying, this is symbolic of my body. This represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is all about attitude. So what Jesus is telling Paul is every time we do this and take that bread, we're remembering him. So the attitude that we have about him is the same attitude we should have about that bread because it is to remind us of Him. 
So when we're willing to take this bread casually and flippantly, and, 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 I, and none of us do that, we don't toss it around, but when we don't respect what we're doing, it's for two reasons. It's either because we don't respect the Lord, but I think in most cases it's because we've forgotten why we're doing what we're doing, which is really why I believe the Holy Spirit wants to call us back to that today. So this, this is do, being done in, in remembrance of Him. Notice it doesn't say, in remembrance of what I did for you. Because that's an historical event. The historical event that took place about 2,000 years ago is His crucifixion on the cross, which is what this represents. But He says, no, do this in remembrance of, of Me. Why? Because we tend to forget Him. Jesus dictated a letter to the church at Ephesus in the, in the in book of Revelation saying, you've done a wonderful job, you've resisted the Nicolotians, you've done all this stuff, but I have this one thing against you. you. You've forgotten your first love. You forgot about me. You forgot you're doing right things, but you forgot why you're doing them. And we can do that. We can just forget why we're doing something. We get in the habit of doing right things, but we forget we're doing it for Him. It's a heart matter. So He says, do this, it reminds you of me. Not just me, but what I did for you, but me. Verse 25, in the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now notice the bread represents His body broken for us. Now, I don't get hung up on whether we ate, eat little squares like we do, or in some churches I've been in where you take a piece of bread and you break it up. I mean, that would be somewhat impractical in a church of this size. Uh, or, or whether you break the bread or don't break the bread, it represents his body that's been bro- broken for you. Somewhere along the line, this bread was broken off of something larger. So I don't get hung up on those details because it's a heart issue more than it is anything else. But the bread is, he's saying, represents my body, which is broken for you. The cup is a, represents my blood, which is the cup, the blood of a covenant. The blood of a covenant. All right, we'll kind of see where the Lord wants us to go with this. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say once a month. It doesn't say every time you come together. It doesn't say twice a year. It doesn't, say, it doesn't tell you when or how often, does it? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, which means we choose when to do it. What he's saying is when you do it, you understand what you're doing. Now, I think there's some parameters to that. One of the dangers in doing it every time you come together is it becomes a ritual. And if you don't do it very often, you can forget about it because it does have a significance which is helpful to remember on a regular basis. All right. I'm just going to follow where the Holy Spirit... I don't know why we're doing this. I'm just going to follow where the Holy Spirit wants to go with this. Verse 27. Therefore, because of all that, the word therefore always means go and look back at what he just said. Because what he's about to say is based on what he just said. So because of that, because this is what the Lord has told us to do, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup unworthily, the King James says, the New King James says, in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does he mean by in an unworthy manner? I'm not sure that that means we need to bow in front of it. I think it means more do we reverence and respect and understand what it is we're doing by doing this. Because remember, it represents, it's intended to represent the body and blood of Christ. And so the attitude we have towards it should reflect the attitude we have towards Him and what He's done for us. It's very easy when you've been saved for very long to take what He's done for you for granted. 
Well, when you're first saved, one of the reasons you generally are filled with zeal and enthusiasm is you know what's happened to you. You know what you were just saved from. But when you've been a Christian for a while, it's very subtly, very easily, we begin to take for granted the cost of what it cost him for us to enjoy the freedom that we have. And when we begin to take that freedom for granted, what happens is we begin to very subtly think somehow we've earned a little bit of it. Somehow, this is because of what Christ did and because I had good intentions and I've been obedient and I've done the things and I teach in Sunday school and I'm a Royal Rangers, you know, leader and I, you know, I pastor and I do all... We begin to add some of that stuff in to kind of help support our standing before Christ. And it's Christ alone. We just sang it. It's our cornerstone. So, so what he's saying is, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, the what you think of him will kind of show up in how you treat it. Again, I don't think this means we need to kneel or bow before it. I know some of you were trained in that tradition. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think it, all, it means, do I really respect the, the body that this represents? It's a piece of bread. What you're going to get today is a piece of bread and a little drink of grape juice. But this bread, it's what the bread represents, and it's what that juice represents that's important. We'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Well, we better find out a little more what that means. Let's go to verse 28. But let a man examine himself. This is one of the great privileges of being a child of God. This is one of the great privileges of being a child of God. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about God's discipline. Because he's a loving father, he will correct us. He will discipline us. And there's a, an order of that discipline. The first method of God's disciplining with is just to speak to us through the word. And if we don't get that, then God will speak to us like, it's like my mother used to do. She'll raise her voice, and then she'll begin to act on what she said she was going to do. And then when she acts on what she says she was going to do, I don't want that, so I better listen. Because I know that's going to come, I better listen to her words or to your father's words. And so this is kind of what's going on here. What he's saying is, start out, examine yourself. What an incredible privilege. Because religion tells you God's up there just looking at every little thing you do wrong. And, and he says, notice he says, examine yourself. He doesn't say tear yourself apart. He doesn't say dig up old things. He doesn't, he just, just take a look at yourself. And usually if there's something wrong, you don't have to look very far because you'll know it. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Examine your attitude. That's kind of what I did this morning. I was looking at this and I was, you know what? I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm starting to take this for granted because I felt the last time we did this, we kind of shoved it in at the end to squeeze it in to make sure we get it done, which means we don't consider that as important as the word. And I really felt the Lord saying today, no, you need to spend this day and use the word to focus on what this means. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For again, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, now, oh, this is getting more, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body well, wait a minute, now it's getting important to have the right attitude. For he who eats and drinks with this wrong attitude towards what we're doing, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Why? Not discerning the Lord's body. The word discern means to recognize and appreciate and evaluate for what it really is. Now that has a twofold meaning, I believe. First of all, it means the Lord's body himself, what he did, what it cost him for our salvation, the privileges that we joy, the right standing we have with God, the grace that, that blesses our lives, not just now, but our eternal future, the promises of healing and all the provision that comes with God, the wonderful things that are in Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God, Lord God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, goes on to 
talks about what redemption means. Those are things that have been bought and paid for us before you were ever born, and we step into them by the grace of God. But it's very easy to forget what it cost him. Now, we spent some time last Sunday as we went through the story of the resurrection, as death, burial, and resurrection get some idea of what it costs. But what he's talking about here is, is when we don't discern the Lord's body. But the other side of that meaning, I want you to look around the room. Look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look behind you. You're looking at the Lord's body. You're looking at the Lord's body. Paul says that in several places, the Holy Spirit through him. He is the head and we are the body, the body of Christ. And, and you, if you separate the head from the body, what happens to it? It's decapitated and it dies. So we are just as much Him as He is us. It's the union that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. That we might be one. Just as He is one with the Father, we might be one with Him and one with each other. Because you can't be one with Him and not one with each other. You can't be one with your head and not one with the rest of your body. As I'm making gestures now, my head and my body are functioning as one. My head is telling my hands what to do. I'm not consciously thinking thoughts. I don't even have to because the, com- the, the cooperation is that good that my hands are following what my head is telling it to do because they're functioning together as one. But notice not only is my right hand functioning together with my head, but my left hand is functioning together with my head. Therefore, my left hand and my right hand are functioning together. If your human body has parts of it that don't function in coordination with each other, that's called being disabled, dysfunctional, handicapped. You wonder how handicapped Christ is in the earth today because the real operating parts of His body don't cooperate with each other and therefore don't cooperate with the head. Because if I'm angry at you and, in, 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 and there's a wall between me and you, then neither of us are functioning. And you're back at me, then neither, neither of us are functioning in union with Him. That's why John says, how can you say you love Christ, God, if you don't love the one He's created, if you don't love your brother? How can you say you love God and you don't love your brother in Christ? Because He loves Him. And, and by the way, you're not in Christ because you were such a hotshot any more than He is. We're all there because of His grace and the cost it cost Him. So there's a consequence, and this is what I don't think the church understands. There is a consequence and can be a physical consequence to strife. There's a consequence to division. Not just the internal turmoil of, when I see that person, but there can be physical consequences to it. We taught last week and showed the, traced the story of how everything from sickness and disease, cancer, you know, heart disease, uh, to, to every other malady, poverty, all of these evil things have as their root sin. Because when God created the earth, there was none of that. There was no lack, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no malady. It all came in through the entrance of sin, because Adam turned this world over to Satan by disobeying God. And that opened the door to all of the rest of this. Then we saw that Christ, in order to destroy the works of the evil one, 1 John 3, 8, took the sin upon, he took the root cause upon himself. He didn't go about solving cancer and solving heart disease and solving poverty. He took the root of it upon himself. I'm not much of a gardener and I don't really like doing a lot of yard work. I guess it's because I had to do a lot of it as a kid. So what I used to do in springtime when those yellow things would stick up in the ground called dandelions, I'd get out, I took, was, why pull them up? I'd get out there with a lawnmower. They're gone. Solves that problem, doesn't it? Except in a few days, pop, they're back up again. Why? Because they weren't dealt with at the root. Now I got somebody comes in and put something in the ground 
that kills them before they can grow. Jesus went to the root of the problem, took it upon himself, took it upon himself and paid the full price. This is what we saw last week. He paid the full price. He solved the sin problem because 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He didn't take your sins on him. He took sin itself. He took the root of the problem and he went and paid the price for it. He served the time. He did the time. He paid the price for it. And we saw it last week. Once the price was paid, Satan couldn't hold him any longer because the only authority, listen carefully, the only authority that Satan had to hold him was the sin. Once the sin was paid for, he no longer had authority to hold him. And therefore, he, that's what we saw, the grave could not hold him, Acts chapter 2. It couldn't hold him. And then I told you the powerful lesson of that. If the price has been paid and it couldn't hold him, and our price has been paid, then he doesn't have authority over us either. That's what we saw last week. Unless you open the door through sin and you let him back in. And this is why this is so important to make sure that we are not, no, none of you are ever going to be perfect. But there are some issues that are more important in God's eyes than others. And strife is right up there at the top because it pulls the body apart. It causes injury to the body, causing it to be painful and less effective. And if that is the only avenue, Satan, the main avenue, that Satan has to hinder the work of Christ, don't you know that's going to be on the top of his list to come at you against with? Strife. Think of this. It's what he's talking about. What it cost him. Remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? What it cost him to pay that price for you and me and then we turn around and let the devil back in and give him authority in our life because you don't know what they said about me. That's not discerning the Lord's body. Let's, let's read on. Just makes it even clearer. Verse 29 again. Let's read that again. He who eats and drinks this in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30. Look at this. For this reason. For what reason? For not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, M-A-N-Y. Many are weak and sick among you and many M-A-N-Y sleep that's not referring to the people that didn't bother to get out of bed to come in church this morning that's talking about death why? because not rightly recognizing the body of Christ is opening a door I'm not even talking so much now. Well, it does affect the attitude because the attitude towards what we're about to do reflects the attitude about what he was willing to pay to give us what he's given to us. And when we're casual about it and we're flippant about it, then what that does is that says, I'm casual about what he did for me. I'm not recognizing it. But I think the greater import is the way we treat each other. Strife. Strife. Strife is opening the door and authorizing Satan to bring into your life things Jesus paid for so that you could be free of. Notice he says we bring the judgment on ourselves. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but, God, but, but Jesus stands there. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He is your advocate. And his advocate before the throne is not, well, you know, they've been a pretty good Christian for the last three months. Not that they come to church every day, they tithe. It's not that. His advocacy before him is, is he brings the cross out, is he stands before the Father saying, I paid for it. I know they messed up, but I paid for it. Yeah. 
And then we turn and say, yes, we paid for it, but I'm going to let the devil in anyway. I'm going to open the door to him. Now, it's one thing to do it out of ignorance, but after today, you won't have that excuse. It's another thing to do so. And understand how the devil works. He doesn't come at you theologically. He doesn't come at you logically. He comes at you emotionally. Did you see the way they looked at you? Do you know what they sang about you out there? That's why I almost never go on Facebook. So if you've tried to befriend me, if I haven't answered you, don't take it personally because I don't want to go looking at what people are saying out there. I don't want, I don't want to give an opening to something I've now got to deal with. Whether it's something they're saying about me or some other church is doing this or something's happened. I don't want to give the opening for strife. I can't, I can't afford it. I don't know about you. I can't afford it. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. It's not worth authorizing Satan loosen my wife and family when Jesus paid so that I could have authority to keep him out. For this reason, for this reason, for eating and drinking and not discerning in the wrong manner and not discerning the Lord's body, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Oh, here's good news though. You ready? Verse 31. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So we have the privilege of examining ourselves and of judging ourselves. When we were raising our children, and when we first saved, you know, we had our two oldest children, we had no clue what we were doing. But as we began to grow in the things of the Lord, we began to understand, and as they got older, we began to learn some things. And then with the youngest children, we, we knew some more when they came along. Um, and one of the things I began to realize is the goal of rearing children is to bring them to the place where they can go out and function on their own and make their own decisions for what's right and wrong, make their own decisions about following the Lord because they know what's right and wrong and they want to do what's right and wrong. Now, when a child's small, you can't give them that right because they'll misuse it all the time. So they have, the first lesson they've got to new, learn is, is you just do it because I said so. <clears throat> There's no debate. I don't have to explain it to you when you're two years old. I don't explain it to you when you're five years old. The only lesson you need to know is because I said so. I'm God in your life. Okay? And I remember God driving this home to me because our young twins were, I don't know, a year old or so, and they were playing in our driveway, and one of them started to run out in the street, towards the street. And I'm, I'm taller than he is, and I'm looking to the right, and I can see a car coming around the corner, and I yelled, and I want to do it now because I'll blow the microphone. I yelled, no, stop! There was no time to reason. There was no time to explain. Son, I can see something you can't see. There's a car coming around the corner and he's going to speed up when he comes. And you're too short. He can't see you. And by the time I got three of those words out, it's too late. He's got to learn when I say stop, you stop. First of all, for your protection. Secondly, so that you understand there are people in your life that God's put in your life to be an authority over you. And you need to learn to submit to that. But when they're 15, that doesn't work anymore. Because now they've got to, somewhere between now and then, you've got to begin to teach them why certain things are right and wrong so that they can begin to know when they get to that age for themselves, there's a reason behind this. I still respect my parents, but there's a reason behind this so that when I'll never forget taking our youngest boys to college 1,200 miles away, taking them up to the dormitory room, we, would, we were the influence in their lives and suddenly I look around as these other 18-year-old kids descended on them and I realized from now on they have more influence on these boys than I do. It was a, it was a, it was a scary ride home in that airplane. And then I had to come back and realize, well, you've got to trust what we put in them. And they've proven it out. Because if you, that's too late now. You, but the point is this. The maturing of a child is when they learn to exercise judgment for themselves about right and wrong, and even when they've messed up, they can go back and correct themselves. And this is what God wants to do with us. He wants us to grow to the place where we're mature enough to look inside and say, 
I'm wrong. My attitude's wrong. And then we've got to begin to judge ourselves. Look at this, so that we would not be judged. Let's keep reading. So that we would not be judged. Verse 32. For when we're judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. There's three steps here. The first is, go back to verse 31. If we would judge ourselves, God won't judge us. Say, well, this is why part of the job of the Spirit of God inside of us is to convict us. It says He came to convict the world of sin. He's in you, and when you've got to learn to be sensitive to that prompting, I shouldn't be watching this. I shouldn't be listening to this. And then your mind kicks in and says, well, what harm is it? You can handle it. Are you going to listen to your reasoning or recognize this is God's Spirit in you trying to save you and avoid harm for you? Maybe not physical harm. It may be emotional, spiritual harm. And, not, and how many times, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I have to raise mine, did you just blow right through that and after, oh, I wish I didn't watch that. I wish I didn't listen to that. I wish I didn't turn to that. I wish I didn't. And it's not even that. It can be little things he's directing you to do. This is God in you. Trying to save you from trouble. Trying to help you. And then when you get off, he's trying to show you, you're off track. You're off track. In Colossians, near the end, he says, let peace rule in your heart. That word rule is not a word in terms of, of, of leadership. It's in terms of like an umpire that says you're safe or you're out. Says, you know, so when we get out of peace in here, not here, we get out of peace in here, what happens is we begin, that's a sign something's wrong. Whoa, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And it's a time to stop and find out, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why don't I have peace in here? I'm not talking about here. Because you can have peace here and not have peace here. You can have peace here and not have peace here. So it's learning because the, 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 the candle, the, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. He's the means by which, primary means by which God directs you. It's being led by your spirit. All those who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. God leads us primarily by the spirit. That's not just in the affairs of our life. It's whether things are right or wrong. The Bible says in the old days, God wrote his law on stone, on tablets of stone. But his, in, the, in the new covenant, it's not that we don't have a law, it's written in our hearts. It's our conscience, it's written in our hearts. Which is why you've got to be careful about not listening to it, because the more you don't listen to it, the harder it gets to hear it, because it begins to become calloused over. All right, so put that verse back up. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, God doesn't have to judge us. Okay, now go to verse 32. But if we don't judge ourselves, God will judge us. And what it means by judging is because we are chastened by the Lord. That means, that word literally means disciplined or spanked. In, in, the, in the Hebrews 12, it is the word mastigo, which is, the, which is the rods that were used to beat Christ before they took out the whip. And it, I've tried to... I've tried to redefine that word I've stu- but that's what it means it means a spanking physical consequences not because God wants to punish us he's trying to get our attention he's trying to get our attention why? because when we're chastened by the Lord he does it so that we would not be condemned by the world I don't want to get into eternal security this morning and all that issue all I want to say this is, 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 is apparently you can come to the place if you just harden your heart so much where you can get to the place where you're condemned with the world. That's the people that are not in Christ. God's got a warning system to keep us from getting there. But I don't want to get past the place of just judging myself. Now again, that doesn't mean there's some people, it's interesting, in raising children, you've got to learn to understand them. Because in Proverbs it says, train up a child in the way they should go. The word train implies that you know they're bent. Not all children are the same. I mean, we had identical twins and they had a different bent. Some children are, are just, some children, they'll turn on themselves very easily and you can't discipline them the same way. 
Some are hard. I mean, they're tough. And you've got to handle them differently. So how do I know which way? It's why God's put His Spirit inside of you. That's why we ask for wisdom in how to do this. So the point is this, that, that the, the, what God wants us to do... So, so some of you out there, some of you need to examine yourself because you haven't done it in a long time. Others, you over-examine yourself. You over, so there's not a cookie-cutter answer here. You've got to follow the Spirit of God. The, here's the key. Be open. Don't just assume everything's going well and it's right. But you'll know. I mean, the Spirit of God's in you saying, mm. and there's some things you don't need discernment about. I don't need discernment about whether to commit adultery. I don't need discernment about whether to lie or whether to steal. I don't need to discernment about whether to be in strife with somebody. There's some things you don't need discernment about. It's written in black and white. And when it's something written in black and white, the Spirit of God's inside of you going, mm, you, you. in most cases, you know. You just haven't been listening. Why? Well, it's, I'll deal with it later. It's not that important. Or everybody's doing it. And all the, all the excuses that Satan brings to us that we may not be condemned with the world. Let's finish this up. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together, together to eat, wait for one another. And he just means by that, recognize what you're doing. You're not just here for yourself. There's an interesting side point to that, and I've mentioned this a number of years ago. I would say it almost every Sunday. And I was talking with some pastors, somebody this week or last week, about this. It's changing really the culture of the church. We'll talk about that this year. But it starts with changing how we see the church. When Lafayette Scales was here, he talked about a worldview, how you see God and how you see the world and how they relate to each other. That affects everything about how you live as a Christian. If you're not sure there's a God or you think there's a God out there but He's really not involved, that affects how you live your life. If you think there's a God out there, but He's angry and He can't wait to get back at people, that affects how you live your life. When I was on the way in this morning, I was wondering, if that's what God's like, why did He send Jesus to pay for our sin? Why did He redeem us if He's mad at us? You need to think about that. Because some of you are raised in religious traditions that think, assumes God's mad at you unless I can give Him some reason to be pleased with you. Well, you can't do anything to make Him pleased with you. You, you're not that strong and neither am I and none of us collectively are. But why would he give his own son? Why would he do all this if he doesn't want us? Why would he do all this if he's mad at us? See, he did it so he could pour his anger out on Christ. He's not angry anymore. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 20, or 17 through 21 talks about that, that God was at work through Christ reconciling the world to us, to him. Reconciling means restoring back. And He's given to us, we'll talk about this later on, He's given to us the word of reconciliation to tell people, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We're representing Him. Wait for one another. The reason we don't, they didn't wait for one another is they didn't recognize that they were His body together. And we come to church on a Sunday morning. Two services, 350 some like that in one service, 350, 400, somewhere in that, maybe a little more. Come, and what we come in is separate individuals who come in and say hello to each other. We receive the word separately and we leave separately. And we say hello to one another and we care about one another, but not at the level that my body cares for itself. If my big toe is hurting, the rest of my body not only knows about it, but it's trying to figure out what to do to solve that problem. If there's a stone in my foot and I'm going to get up here, the rest of my body's trying to figure out when can I pull aside to open my shoe and take that stone out because it's going to be distracting to try to preach with a stone in my foot, in my shoe. My whole body is geared towards solving that problem and we're not there yet. And the Spirit of God wants to bring us to that place of unity. Wait for one another was an indication. Was an indication. All right, we've got to finish this up. Wait for one another. But let, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. 
We're going to, in just a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's table together. But I want you to take a moment right now. I want all of us to take a moment right now and just be quiet and examine our hearts. There are going to be some of you this morning, you don't have to examine very hard because you know God's been dealing with you about something. And you need to decide. It's not enough to just say, the judgment doesn't mean I'm wrong. The judgment means I'm going to do something about it. And if that's you this morning, I want you in this moment of quiet to decide before the Lord what it is you're going to change this week, what, physical, what action you're going to take that's different. There may be some of you out there this morning, you can't quickly identify what that is. And I'm going to pray for all of us in just a moment. But in your heart, you need to ask the Lord to show you if there is anything. Don't go on some witch hunt or something, but ask Him to show you. Because most likely it's there somewhere, you just haven't been able to identify it. And there may be some out there, maybe many of us, that you've already done this and, and everything's fine. In which case, we'll just be quiet. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. We come to you in His name because we come to you by the grace that you have lavished upon us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We come to acknowledge this morning, Father, that we forget many times that this meal we're about to celebrate has a significance and an importance that's far beyond the piece of bread and the cup of juice. And we as a church and many of us have just kind of taken this for granted. Father, as the shepherd of this church, the under-shepherd, as the pastor of this church, I repent before you because I've taken it for granted. I ask you to forgive me and as a church to forgive all of us that we may honor what we do right now the proper way. Give us balance so that we don't turn it into some religious ritual, but that we honor it from our heart. I pray for every one of us right now, Father, whatever the issue is, that's in our heart, that you may be showing us, that you may have already shown us, or that we may be yet to see. Make it clear to us, Father. Give us the strength to repent of it and show us what it is we need to do to begin to step out and change so that we don't go back. We judge ourselves this morning, Father. And we do this in recognition that the body and blood of Christ, that this bread and this cup now represents, recognizing, Father, that this is sacred to you. Teach us how to value and treasure it. If there's strife, Father, in our hearts towards anyone in this church or anyone, help us to recognize it and let go of it. And, and to remember, Lord, all that you have forgiven us of so that we can forgive others as you've forgiven us. For the grace to do that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen and amen.